me and Jay were gone this last weekend. We went to North Carolina, and uh, we went to the National Apologetics Conference. Big dog, the big dog scholars of the world uh, were there. These are our Christian scholars and um, some. Uh, I, gosh, I don't know if I if I list off the names. Maybe you know them. Maybe you wouldn't. But um, guys like Norman Geisler was there. He didn't end up speaking, but he was there. Uh, Jay actually got to meet him and talk to him. This is like. This is like Jay's Disneyland, okay? Apologetics Conference. It's true. It's like if there was a Disneyland for Jay, it would be the Apologetics Conference National. This is where all the big dogs come around the world to meet together. Uh, Gary Habermas, he's the leading um, he's the leading scholar on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the entire world. Uh, met with him, and Jay got to interview him. And, um, you know, Jay, why don't you just tell him? Why don't you just share a little something? Jay's doing a documentary, and I was kind of helping him out there, so... Amen. Yeah, um, I, I let you guys know about it a few weeks back, doing a documentary responding to a movie on YouTube uh, that's pretty much blaspheming Christianity, um, attacking it, and pretty much lying in order to do it. Uh, just being pretty devious and uh, very convincing, but it's just it's uh, rubbish nonetheless. It's not none of it's true. So the Lord really provided and opened doors. I get to interview. Uh, Dr. Habermas, as Josh mentioned, got to interview Lee Strobel. Um, he came out to the church. You guys saw him if you were there on Sunday. Amazing. Knocked it out of the park. Um, we got to interview a guy briefly who's he was just on Fox News tonight, actually. His name is uh, uh, Dinesh Souza, and he wrote a book called What's So Great About Christianity? And, I mean, this guy is elite. I, I mean, I'm talking like comes out of the most prestigious secular universities in the entire world. Uh, comes from Princeton and Dartmouth. And this guy stands up for the king and just annihilates atheism. And uh, we got to get him uh, on an interview, uh, and he'll be a part of the documentary, and uh, a few other guys. So the Lord really opened the doors. He really blessed it, and uh, just even some connections for the future. Uh, so we were blessed, and the documentary should be good. It, meant it, w- it was the sweetest blessing, and um, I think we might even, I haven't told Robert this yet, but I was thinking in here in the near future, might actually put um, one of these, I, I took two DVDs home from the Apologetics Conference of these guys, the messages that they spoke on, absolutely powerful. One of the messages, probably the top five messages I've ever heard in my life, uh, absolutely life-changing for me, and you'll probably hear it bleed through the message tonight, just what the Lord has uh, spoken to me, but... The message that I walked away for for us, for this generation, is this. It's simply this. You know what's happening to us? Fam- I don't know if you can see it. I don't know if you know it. But we are being taught not to think. We as a country, think about it. We do not read anymore. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hand, but there's a few, a, a very small population that enjoy even reading. What has happened is, you think about back in uh, maybe the 50s or 40s, right there when TV starts to come in. Before that, everyone reads. They exercise their mind. They read the newspaper in the morning. They read books. This is how they're entertained. This day and age, we sit before a television and we stare into it for hours upon hours. And our mind is not jogged at all. We do not exercise um, a growth of our mind at all. We do. I am very upset at myself that I feel illiterate many times. I feel um, I just can't think as straight as I wish I could. And it is because when I was young, I had no motivation to learn. Why? So what did I do? I I just always ask the question, like, why do I need to learn this? And how is this going to help me in life? Every day of my school life, I used to sit there and just be like, this is lame. I want out of this dump. And uh, so what would I do? 
I would just memorize the questions and the answers and then forget it all ASAP. I would just pass the classes, do a good job, and move on, and I would forget. And so I never had any motivation to learn or to retain information. And uh, that was pretty much one of the greatest messages I brought back from one of the young guys, Sean, Sean McDowell. This is Josh McDowell's son. And um, he's just like, this generation does not know what to think. We are losing the battle. And you know what? So, so now look what happens on the news. When the news tells you something, everybody believes it. They, they say, they, they, oh, that happened? Wow. Man that's, man, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. We don't think about anything anymore. We just take everything we see in and everything our professors tell us. That's right, right? That's, that's the way it should be. You know one law they just passed, just, or they're trying to pass right now? And we need to get on our faces as a family and pray for this. I think we will right now. But, um, they're pa- Jay, you want to tell them? The law regarding, uh, okay. A man, a man, a man who uh, feels that he is a woman inside is allowed to walk into the girl's restroom and use it if he pleases because we don't want to offend uh, anyone, right? What? In schools. This is ridiculous. Think about the little girls. It's like if I ever see a man walk, I don't know, I don't know what, I, it's like, excuse me, sir, um, what are you doing? Well, I'm going in there because I feel like I'm... A, no, 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 no. You're not going in there with my daughter in there. I will kill you. Okay? You will not go in there. Because I don't know how this works. I, how have we got to this point? See, where does it end? Where does the line end? And when do we stand up? When do we rise up and stop being convinced and overpowered? When do we Christians make a stand? We're being backhanded. And it's like, aha, you little Christians. Uh, we're going to look at this tonight. The giants that come to attack us. The media... The society that we live in. Back in the day, the Christians were the elite. The Christians were the ones who made a stand. The intellectuals of the day. But this day, Christians don't know why they believe what they believe. And Christians just get pushed around like they're a little sissy walking around in the park or something. Oh, that's all you have faith. Oh, that's nice. And I was so challenged this weekend to start to even study within my own self. To start to read and do things... Just know why. And to give an account and give an answer to every single man. I've got to start standing for righteousness. I'm super excited. We just started a club at UCR. I'm going to try to be there on campus maybe two to three times a week. Challenging students. And talking to them. I'm not going to debate and argue and cause problems. No. I'm going to love them in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to bring evidence to the table and reason. Me and Jay will be there. Sal's going to be there with me. And we're going to just start talking to people one-on-one. Man, let's talk about this. Is this reasonable? And Jay's even going to give us a little something tonight. I asked him to come and just bring a little something for us just to chew on. But I just want to pose a challenge to every single one of you. It's like if we have truth and we have righteousness, why aren't we standing for it? Why are we being pushed around like little sissies? You want to know why? It's because we don't care. It's because there is no drive within us to study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, but somebody who rightly divides the word of truth... And that's what I desire to be is I don't care who it is. I don't care what professor. It's like right there. I would love to be able to say to every single student, listen, man, you bring your professor right over here to this table and we will talk. You bring this professor. Or let's go ahead and sit down. Let's talk and see if this is the truth. No matter who it is, to be able to count, give an account and an answer to every single person. We've got to stand up. What's next? I know what's next. A man will be able to marry a man. Then guess what? A man will be able to marry his daughter. Then guess what? A man will be able to marry his dog or whatever he wants. 
And maybe some will say in this day and age, hey, that's wrong. You can't marry your dog. Why not? Because that's wrong. You just can't do that. Yeah, well, it was wrong 30 years ago for a man to marry a man. Absolutely wrong. They put you in the loony bin for that. But now, do what thou wilt, for this is the whole of law. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you feel. We don't want to offend anybody. We can't do that. There are no morals. There is no truth. We've got to stand up, family. Jay's going to bring a word for us, so let's listen. Amen? Let's get ready. Let's put on our thinking caps. Small moment of time. Welcome, Jay, huh? Alrighty. Tonight I'm going to be asking you guys a few few questions, but before I get into that, let's just give a quick word of prayer to the Lord. Huh? Father, we just come to you and we pray that uh, we'd be able to apply these things practically, Lord, in our everyday lives, and uh, that we'd walk away with a little something, if anything, Lord, motivation to seek out uh, the truth, Lord, and to become more, better acquainted with it. So please uh, just be here in our midst and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Got a couple questions. First question I'm going to ask you guys is I'm going to ask you, should a Christian have to give reasons for why they are a Christian? Anybody want to give a crack at that? Should a Christian have to give reasons? Jeremy. Yep. Okay. First Peter 3.15. That's right. Be ready always to give a man or to give an answer to every man that asks you for the hope that is in that's in you, with meekness and fear. Okay, so we should give answers. We're required to. We're it's a biblical command. Now, if I were to ask you guys this question next, I'd wonder what you'd say. And that question is, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Should I pick on somebody? Manual. Tell us why you're a Christian, real quick, just real quick. I'm talking like two sentences. Because um, um, he saved me from my sin, because he died on the cross for me. Who's that? Jesus. I'm in the role of the skeptic for just a second here, so don't get bummed out at me. Oh, so you believe in Jesus. And he saved you from your sin. And that's why you're a Christian? And that's what rules your life? Well, I got news for you. Jesus didn't even exist. Okay? Let alone was he God? Did he die on the cross and raise again from the dead? There's no such thing as a person who can raise themselves from the dead. That's ludicrous. That's called stupid. And, by, by the way, lots of other people in the world had faith. What makes you think that you're right? How arrogant of you. Okay, this is the skeptic. This is what they'll say. So, when we go to the skeptic and we want to tell them why we're a Christian, we have to know what to say. We have to be ready to give an answer to these people. And the answer, um, you know, of course is that Jesus died for our sins, and that's our experience. We've experienced a change. But that's not the whole reason. Now, the reason why we're Christians... First, let me, let me define something. Truth. What is truth? Okay. What's that? Spotless, blameless, and no contradictions. That's a pretty accurate definition. 
But I, w- I would go to say in, in a one-liner, truth is anything that corresponds with reality. In other words, truth, anything that is true will have some sort of fact linking it to the real world. It will make sense. It will not contradict reality. It will cor- correspond with reality. Now, how do we know whether or not something corresponds with reality? And why do we say Christianity is true? Well, Christianity is true. And I am a Christian because it is logically consistent, it's empirically adequate, and it's experientially relevant. Three things, and I'll get into those. Don't let those scare you, okay? They're not that complicated. Now, what do I mean? We'll go through the three points real quick. Logically consistent. Christianity is logically consistent. That's why we know it's true. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it adheres to the laws of logic, Laws of logic are not something scary. They're something you use on an everyday basis. You use the laws of logic when you walk up to a door and you say, hmm, the door's closed. I probably can't make it through if it's closed. So I should open it so I don't hit my head and look like a fool. Okay? That's the laws of logic. It's common sense. Now, we'll look at two of them briefly. The laws of logic. How does Christianity adhere to the laws of logic? Well, the first law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. Law of non-contradiction. And that simply states that A cannot equal non-A. In other words, it can't contradict. In other words, I can't say it is raining outside, but yet that it's not raining outside at the same time, in the same place, and in the same sense. Of course, it could be raining here, but not raining in Arizona. Okay, but... That's not the law of non-contradiction. That's not contradiction. Contradiction would be to say, it is raining at upper room, and then turn around and say, it is not raining at upper room, at the same time, in the same place, and in the same sense. That's the law of non-contradiction. Now, Christianity adheres to that, while other religions fail to adhere to that. They don't adhere to that. Um, they contradict themselves constantly, and they contradict reality. We'll take uh, Eastern religions, for example, or Mormonism even. Okay, These things contradict reality. What they do is they teach core things that don't correspond to reality. Um, For instance, Eastern religions deny that rationality and logic even exist. In other words, they deny common sense even exists. They deny truth even exists. No, there's no absolute truth. But what's funny is, in order to deny that that the laws of logic exist or that truth exists, you have to use it. So they're saying, I am denying the laws of logic by using the laws of logic. They're thinking in order to say it. It doesn't make sense. It contradicts itself. So we'll go to the second law of logic, which is called the law of the excluded middle. And that basically says it's either or. It's either A or it's B. It's not both and. It either is raining outside or it is either not raining outside. Okay, it's either Christianity is true or the other faiths are true. It can't be both and can't be both at the same time. Christianity makes a claim. Jesus himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's either true or it's not true. It can't be true and not true at the same time. That's impossible. So Christianity is true because it adheres to the laws of logic. Now, I don't expect you guys to get this right off the bat, but I would hope that it would motivate you to go out and study and to show yourselves approved by understanding these things. But the second one is Christianity is empirically adequate. What do I mean by empirically adequate? I mean that we have good, solid evidence that we can see with our eyes. We can test it. Empirical data. We can see these things. Tangible. 
Okay? And no, what in the world would be tangible, you'd say? Well, there's several evidences, several lines of evidences that substantiate our faith empirically. But we'll say this. One is the resurrection, which is key. Okay? If the resurrection is not true, then our whole faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, you might as well not be a Christian. Because it doesn't make any sense. Now, why or how do we know that the, that the resurrection is true? What good evidence do we have to suggest that? We have lots of good evidence. Okay, and I'm sure some of you know the evidence. But there's about 30 established facts. Gary Habermas, actually the guy that I interviewed this weekend, went out and researched for about 15 years and got these facts together. There's a good solid 30 facts surrounding the resurrection historically. Things that we know happened. And then the conclusion of those facts is what we must find out. What are those facts saying? We'll look at four of them briefly. Okay, four facts. What do we know about Jesus' resurrection or, the, or, the, or the, the whole scene in Jerusalem? What do we know happened there? We'll look at four. One, we know that Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried in a tomb. We know this. This is historical fact. Not even an atheist who's honest would deny that. Two, we know that Jesus' tomb three days later was found empty. There was no body three days later. Three, we know that all of a sudden, tons of people started claiming to have seen Jesus running around and talking to people, eating, conversing. Even 500 people at one time witnessed Jesus. Okay, The disciples all had personal experiences with him on more than one occasion. Even Thomas I'll only believe if I touch the wounds. And he saw him there, and he proclaimed him as God. So the disciples at least thought they saw Jesus, and so did these 500 other people and various others. Okay? And four, we know that the disciples' lives were radically changed as a result. They went from being scared, running around, remember Peter, Lord, I'll never deny you, runs off, cuts the dude's ear off, right? But then after that, he's all of a sudden doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. He even denied him three times, you remember. But all of a sudden, Peter is this bold proclaimer of Christianity, willing to die for his faith, to proclaim that Jesus rose again from the dead. So these are those four facts. Now, what's the best explanation of those four facts? I'll propose that the best explanation of those four facts is that Jesus rose again from the dead. Others would disagree. They would come up with you know, contentions that are absurd. Things that don't make sense. For one, okay, they would say with the empty tomb. How is Jesus' tomb empty? Well, we believe that he rose again from the dead, and that's why. Well, well no, that can't be true. Um, the disciples must have stole the body. That's what happened. And people say these things. Atheists say these things. The disciples stole the body. So let's look at that for just one second. The disciples stole the body. So after Jesus is put in the tomb... They, they conjure up this scheme. You know, guys, we really look like a bunch of idiots. We've been following around this Jesus guy for three years. And he turns out to be a dud. So we want to save face. Our families have been calling us stupid, and now they're going to be right. So what do we do to redeem ourselves, to save face? I know. Let's go steal the body out of the tomb and hide it, and then say Jesus rose again from the dead. Then we'll look, we'll look credible again. So these losers, these tax collectors and fishermen and what have you, went and took down about 12 Roman guards or so, which is the average to have it posted, 
these Roman guards are the equivalent of the modern-day Navy SEALs or the Army Ranger. These guys are elite. And these losers, these tax collectors and fishermen, went and took these guys out, rolled the two-ton stone out of the way, got Jesus' body out, hit it, and then ran around proclaiming that he was risen again from the dead. But what's the problem with that? One, these guys aren't going to take out the Roman soldiers. It's not going to happen. Two, why in the world would they die for a lie? Okay, they're saving face, but then comes the hard part. Guess what? If you don't tell us the truth about Jesus and his resurrection, we're going to kill you. We're going to fillet your skin and pull it off your body while you're still alive. Who in their right mind would die for such a stupid lie? I'm pretty sure they'd admit it, but they all, all, every single one of them, except for John, died a martyr's death, a horrible martyr's death, proclaiming to their last breath that Jesus was risen. So that doesn't hold up. They didn't steal the body. That's ridiculous. Okay, um, others say, well, you know, well, Jesus didn't actually die then. Muslims say this all the time. This is an excuse. Jesus never died. He was merely swooned. He was uh, just kind of knocked out cold. And when he was put in the tomb for three days, he had time to resuscitate. And he, was, he really, really never died. And then he went around and people thought he was resurrected. Okay, let's look at that for just one second. So you're telling me after Jesus went through a scourging, which most people didn't even make it through, getting lashed 40 times with all sorts of hard bone and steel and whatever else on this thing, the cat of nine tails ripping off his flesh so your back was exposed. After that, he was nailed to a cross, not to mention beat on the way, probably kicked and had his beard ripped out, had a crown of thorns shoved under his skull, nailed to this cross, and then stabbed in the side with a spear. And they wrapped him in a hundred pound garment, garments to put him in this grave, in this tomb. So you're telling me, Jesus, after three days of sitting there in a tomb, took these hundred pound garments off of himself, rolled the two ton stone out of the way on his own, got past the Roman guards, and then ran around convincing everybody that he was actually risen from the dead. Okay, yeah. I think that the disciples would see him and say, you know, you may be alive, but you're not risen. We need to get you to a hospital. I don't think he could convince him with half his back gone and God knows what else. I mean, that would have been horrible. There's no way, okay? That doesn't make sense. But then people had seen him as well. What do you say about the eyewitness accounts? When people see something, it makes it much more credible. Like, for instance, if we all collectively saw something tonight, say we saw Jesus, all of us, not just one of us, but all of us, and we all describe the same thing. What are the chances of us being wrong? What are the chances? And not on just one occasion, on several. They say, well, they were hallucinating. People actually say this in major universities. Well, they thought they saw Jesus, but they just hallucinated what they saw. Okay, here's the problem with that. Psychologists will admit that hallucinations are singulatory events, not collective. What do I mean by singulatory? They happen to one person. Dreams. They happen to one person. I don't say, hey, you know what? That dream that we had last night, well, that was great. You know? Hey, uh, I'm having a great dream right now. Maybe I should wake up and uh, have my friend come into my dream with me, and we can have the same dream together. That can't happen. It's impossible. So what's the likelihood of over 500 people at one time hallucinating seeing Jesus, knowing what he did? It's ridiculous, and it's absurd. So that's not a good explanation. And fourth, again, with the disciples being radically changed. They're radically changed. 
Nobody dies for a lie. Nobody does that in their right mind. So what's the best explanation of those facts? He died on the cross and was buried in a tomb. Three days later, the tomb was empty. 500 people at one time and the disciples on various occasions saw Jesus walking around and the disciples died for their belief. What's the best explanation of those facts, just four of them? The best explanation is that Jesus rose again from the dead. And that's empirical evidence. And you can't deny that. That's why every atheist, when you bring up the resurrection, they don't want to talk about it. Because they know they can't win the battle. Jesus conquered death. And that's why Satan's attacked the resurrection so much. But those are the two points, logically consistent and empirically adequate. Remember, the laws of logic prove that Christianity is true. And it's empirically adequate because we have good data to show that the resurrection is true. The third one, real quick, experientially relevant. And what's that mean? Simply, your personal experience. Just like Emmanuel said, I'm a Christian because Jesus has saved me from my sins and made me a new person. And you all have your story. I have my change. You have your change. You have what, what changed you. It personally happened to you. However, that's not adequate evidence in and of itself. Because guess what? Other people in the world have experiences too, don't they? I mean, look at the... Even the Satanist has an experience, doesn't he? The Satanist has experience. They even have power, you guys. I've seen it. The Hindu, they have experiences. The Mormon has the experience. The Mormon says, Oh, I know Mormonism's true because I've got a burning in my bosom. Right here. Okay? You're feeling it. That's why we know Mormonism is true. But see, many would raise the, the contention. So you're a Christian because of your experience. But what about their experience? Why are they wrong and you're right? What gives you the right to say that? Well, here's, here it is. Christianity, not only do we have the experience of people collectively all over the world, but we also have the other two. It's logically consistent and empirically adequate. What's the source of everybody else's experience? Deception. Deception. The Satanist has power. Guess what, guys? He's deceived. He's deceived. The Mormon, they even have power. Guess what? They're deceived because their beliefs don't add up. They don't adhere to the laws of logic, but Christianity does. That's why we're Christians, guys, because it makes sense. It corresponds with reality. And that's it. So I would encourage you guys. I know this is a lot just to dump on you guys. And I know it probably went over your guys' heads, a lot of it. But that's okay because I don't expect you to get it. I, didn't cer I certainly didn't get it the first time I looked into it. But go ahead and look into it. Study to show yourselves approved. Know why you believe what you believe. Like Josh was saying, we're, there's an attack to take away your ability to think correctly to think critically. They want you to think that it's okay in school now to, to say, no, we can't say mommy and daddy anymore. We can't say that. It might offend somebody because somebody may have two mommies or two daddies. They're not thinking critically. They're not saying to themselves, wait a minute, maybe somebody having two mommies isn't right in the first place. Maybe we should think a little bit. But they don't. And they want you to be stupid, plain and simple. They want you to not think for yourself. And the Bible certainly teaches to think for yourselves. So please take anything that I said, any meat tonight, would be just go 
and learn how to think critically and do it biblically. Amen? Okay. Amen. Let's give Jay a hand. Family, I, I just... I would love... Man. Number one, I want you to be educated in the Scriptures and I want you to have a relationship with your King. If you just bring truth to the table and have no relationship in, in love, if you just have a bunch of knowledge that you spit at somebody to prove them wrong, it still does not bring them to know Jesus. It is the relationship built. One of the messages that I heard this weekend, amazing, that I think it's 87% of people who come to know Jesus are through a relationship with someone, whether it be a friend, a family member, whatever. Amazing. It is truth plus relationship. It is truth plus love that brings somebody into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's jump into the Word, eh? Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight again. And Lord, you see the burden in my heart. Man, I just want... Lord, I really... I want to be able to give an answer to your... I want to be... I wanted to study to show myself approved to you, King. So I don't have to be ashamed. I can, I, I can walk around, Lord, proclaiming the truth of you, Jesus, and no matter who comes against, no matter how heavy the enemy is, that I can proclaim the truth to every single man and meet him right where he's at. God, not so that we can be lifted up, look at him, he's smart, no, but so that you could be glorified, so everyone can see that you are the true God and you deserve to be lifted up and you deserve to be bowed to, you deserve to be lived for. And that's what we desire and that's what we want, so please, God, would you stir your people tonight? Would you speak to them in the name of Jesus? Amen. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 17 tonight. We're jumping... Hello? 1 Samuel chapter 17 tonight. And we have the classic Bible story, yes, you know it, from when you were in Sunday school way back in the day, the story of David and Goliath. You know what I've been finding... You know, we, we teach every seventh chapter. And it just seems like we keep landing on these monumental chat. It's just amazing that we hit the story of David and Goliath this week. If we were one story earlier, one chapter after, we would have missed it. But we are right here at it. So we're just going to jump right in. And maybe this may be a little repetitious to you, but hey... Come to receive, listen up, gird up your mind, and receive from God in Jesus' name. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. And were gathered together at Shoko, which belonged to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azka. And, uh, oh man... Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elam, and set in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on, the, on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. Yes. The valley of Elah. I've been there. And it is intense. It's very cool looking. It's like... When you're driving by it, like we, we, we search for it. Remember, Jay, were you with me? Maybe it was with, maybe it was Christian and, uh, Nolan, but 
When we were looking for the Valley of Elah? No, we were driving up and down this road, like, trying to find it. Like, where is this thing? We're actually driving right through the valley. Like, we didn't know we were in the Elah Valley, and we're driving back and forth. Like, where is this place, man? And all of a sudden, we got to the point we figured out, like, here, we're looking on the map, it's like, here it is. We're, we're standing in the Here it is. And it was huge. I mean, it's probably like, from, from, from this building to that building, multiply that by four. And that's about how wide the valley was there. Okay, really big valley. I mean, it's huge. And um, so probably, yeah, about like three football fields or something like that. Three or four football fields across. This thing was massive. This valley is huge. But then on both sides, there's a mountain on one side. Here you go, mountain. And on the other side, there's a, there's a mountain. But it's not real big. Like, I hiked up on the Israelite side. It was really cool. I hiked up on the Israelite side, and I was sitting there looking at the... Look, I'm overlooking the valley, right? And I can see right here is David's... The brook where he pulled out the five smooth stones, it's right there. That's where the river ran through. It's right there on this side of the of the valley. And I looked down, and there it is. And then on the other side, there's the Philistines. And I was just kind of sitting there, like, just imagine what it'd be like. Like, yeah! You know, like, just getting excited, like we're getting ready to go to battle, you know? But then all of a sudden, you see Goliath come out. And it's just like, oh, snap. This guy is huge, you know? He's, like, standing there in the middle. He's just, like, calling out to the Israelites up on the hill. Hey! Which one of you guys want to come down scrap? You know, it's just, uh, and they're all scared. They don't have anything to say. They're quiet. We're going to read about that story right now. But that's the setting. That's what was happening. This huge valley. One army on one side of the hill and the other army on the other side of the hill. Check it out. It, even, it says it there in verse 3. You see that? Let's read again. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and the Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. You see? Just what I described. Verse 4, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Goliath, the champion. He was the champion. The champion. He's the top dog. No one's coming up against him. He was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit, in Bible days, there's different measurements of cubits all the way throughout time. They range anywhere from 20 inches to about 45 inches. The cubit in the Bible day is this. From your elbow to the tip of your finger, this is a cubit. He is six cubits and a span, the span of your hand. And in this day, with whatever they were measuring, the Bible days, they say span. If he's six cubits, then he was, somehow they calculated out to be, this is what scholars are telling us, that it is nine feet and nine inches. This is what he's coming out to be. Nine feet and nine inches. Now, that's a tall guy. Robert Waldo was the tallest man recorded that we know of to ever walk the earth. Eight feet, 11 inches. Eight feet, 11 inches. Now, I'm like, I'm like 5'11 and a half, almost six foot. I'm like right there. And uh, if you add another three feet, three feet, that's here. Cut me in half and then throw that on top. And that's the top of the guy's head, you know. So nine feet, that's... But he was nine foot nine. Nine foot nine. He's a uh, he's big boy. Goliath, his name means strip. To strip. Goliath, to strip. Interesting. He's definitely one that wanted to strip many people down, break them down, strip their skin off their bones, and throw it to the birds, as he says he wants to do with David. Real quick. 
Is not the enemy and the people we come up against feel like they're nine foot nine sometimes? See, all this information that maybe Jay has spit to you, maybe you're thinking like, man, I, yeah, that's that sounds good, and I don't... Okay, I'm understanding what you're saying, Jay. Maybe not retaining it, maybe no motivation. But are you not super motivated when you come up against the person and you don't have anything to say? All of a sudden you say, man... Here's the moment. I wish I, I wish I could say something. I don't know what to say, man. The guy's nine foot nine. Like, what do I say to this guy? That's what it feels like. It can, it can be many different parallels. Sometimes, the problem or the situation in your life feels like nine foot nine. That's a big problem. I can't knock that down. That thing is big. That's a mountain. That's what Jesus said, even if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move. He's not speaking about a bunch of dirt, no. He's speaking about the mountain within your own life. If you have faith, you can say to that mountain, move. You believe it, it will move. There are mountains within our own lives that we struggle with. On an individual basis, day by day, on who we are and what we want to change. Nine foot nine, it's big. There are problems and situations, giants within our lives, nine foot nine that are coming up against us, getting in our face, that are difficult to run from. There are people on the street who seem nine foot nine when they're just breathing down your neck, that professor, whoever it is, hard to stand up and say something to the family member, whoever it may be. But you want to so bad, but you don't know what. We're going to find the answer of how to be equipped tonight, those things. Goliath was nine foot nine in verse five, and he had a helmet of brass upon his head, Helmet of brass. Brass is heavy. I wouldn't want any kind of helmet that was brass on my head. Can you imagine that? I want I want a football helmet. I want something that's soft on the inside. i got padding. Those of you who played football, you, you remember, they stick the uh, pump in the top of your helmet and they pump you. you. You guys are looking at me like, what? You know, it's like there's these airbags inside of your helmet and they stick like a bicycle pump in the top of your helmet in three different spots and they you pump it up and it like feels like all right I'm ready to go you know you hit your head and you're 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 locked in I like that kind of helmet brass that's uh this guy's crazy he is a beast that's for sure he had a helmet brass upon his head and was armed with a coat of mail that weight, or the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. 5,000 shekels of brass. A coat of mail. This is a, uh, remember those old school, like, soldiers, you see them back in the day, the knights, and they wear this mesh, this, uh, this metal mesh, you know, over them. So if somebody hits you with a sword, it's not gonna cut your skin. It's, hey, you're still gonna get a bruise, yeah. But, um, you're not gonna be cut. This coat, you know how much it weighed? 5,000 shekels, which is how much? About 200 pounds on your back. On your butt. 200 pounds. It's more than I weigh. <laughs> I mean, 200 pounds, another that, just on my, I can't even imagine. 200 pounds, and he just ran around with this on his back. Like, it was, that's how he went into battle. Like, hey, I'm dropping 200 pounds on me, going into battle. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, shin guards and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. His weaver's beam, 
this giant stick. On the end of this stick was 600 pounds, I'm sorry, 600 shekels of iron. 600 shekels, that is 25 pounds. 20, I don't know if you, those of you guys who work out, you know what I'm talking about. 25 pounds in your hand, that's like, you're curling that. You know, you're trying to, uh, you're trying to cut up the bicep with that. No, he put that on the end of his spear, you know, this long spear, this, I can't even imagine. A shot put is like 16 pounds, I think. Something like this. A shot put, you know, the, the guys in the Olympics, they do this. You know what I'm talking about? So they, they shot but this heavy ball, 16 pounds, and he's got 25-pound weight, a 25-pound head spear on the end of this stick. I can imagine how big this thing must have been. It was probably like, like this. This, this fat piece of iron, can you imagine thrusting through your chest or something with that? I mean, he must have just floored people. Can you imagine? Nine foot nine, check out my spear, 200 pounds on my chest, what? You know, I mean, I can't even imagine how scared the people must have been seeing this guy. Monster. Even when, it, when a seven footer walks next to you, you're like, dang, that fool's tall. No, no, no. Add almost three more feet to that, and that's what you got. That's Goliath. And add a man that could carry 200 pounds on his back and let him run around like he's got, you know, some football pads on or whatever. I mean, he must have been massive. Who knows how much he weighed? Maybe 500 pounds, 600 pounds. Who knows? He was very strong to be able to carry this this spear and throw it around like some rag doll. Just no big deal. Just walk up. Yeah, 25 pounds. Bam! You know, just hammer people with that. Can't even imagine how big this guy must have been. In verse 8, in this man, Goliath, the one whose name means stripped, he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? And you were the servants to Saul? Choose a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Bit of challenge. Hey Israel, what up? You think you guys are strong? I challenge you. Bring it to the table. Mr. Professor, all the time in the class, is it not? Oh, hey Christian. Yeah, you got anything to bring to the table? Well, Christianity is whack. It has nothing to bring to the table. And I'm going to squash your faith right now throughout this semester. And if you even try to open your mouth, I will drop kick you in your seat and make a fool of you in front of everyone. This is not the mentality of the pride, the arrogance of the world. When I talk to people on the streets about evolution and about the existence of God, people talk to me like, are you a psycho? Haven't you read the news? Didn't you watch Discovery Channel? Hello? I read something today on MSN.com, on a Hotmail. I saw the news. It said they just found a jawbone with some teeth in it, and it's 10 million years old. 10 million. How do you know that? Were you there, 10 million? Well, we have ways of measuring. How can you ever, what instrument could ever tell you you could measure back 10 million years? We have not even been here Think about the time from Christ till now. 2,000 years? 10 million! How can anyone say anything like that or make a claim like that? That does not make sense. If you can measure back 10 million years, you should be able to tell the future one year. Right? I mean, come on. 
right? If you could measure back 10 million or a billion years, this is ridiculous. But we, we take it as fact. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Discovery Channel says it. The History Channel, come on, don't you believe this? And this is what people say to me. And I'm like, do you know that evolution is being wiped off the face of the earth? Many more people, more professors are actually looking into intelligent design. And people look at me like, are you crazy? Like, what? Yeah, I tell them, did you know the, the, the world-leading atheist, Anthony Fu, the top dog of the entire world, just turned from atheism to theism. He believes there is a God. And that you can have a personal relationship with him. Just here in 2004. It was just recent. just happened. No, it didn't. That's No, that's not true. People don't want to accept it. I was taught, since I was a child, that I came from a monkey. To tell you the truth, and 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 I and I and as soon as I started looking at the claims of the Bible, my mind was so jacked up. I started to balance them out. Like, okay, well, how does how do the dinosaurs work with the Bible, and how do me coming from a monkey and turning into a human? Like, well, why isn't that in the Bible? Why doesn't the Bible speak about this? And I just started challenging trying to figure it out and I, I was jacked up for a while because no one taught me the truth and now I don't care who it is if you have a friend and you want to talk bring them to me I would love to sit down and talk with them and share the truth and I know Jay would love to sit down and share the truth with them and if you want to know then we are available ask questions Josh would you recommend something would, how do I answer this how does this go about we want to help. There are giants out there who are taunting the Christian. With Weaver's big Discovery Channel. Man, they got some big dog stuff. They make it look so flashy and so cool. 25 pounds, that's power. And people take it like, well, of course. Don't you know? Hello? Yeah, you're that little guy in the corner who thinks he knows stuff, but the rest of the world does not believe that. I understand. But the rest of the world is ignorant. It's because they do not read. They do not seek the truth. And there's no reason to for me. There is no, like, what? Why do I need to learn anything? I told you that before. But there are giants in the land, and we must equip ourselves. Let's move on. Look at what else he says in verse 10. The Philistines said, I... Defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Gosh. They were scared. You know what army is scared here? Remember? Remember the army as we just went through the book of Joshua who wiped every single army off the face of the earth. The hand of the Lord was on them and they just backhanded everyone it was it was no thing god had his hand on them but look at them they are frightened they are scared is this not 99 percent of the population of christianity today are we not we're dead scared we don't know what to say to the boss at work we don't know how, how to say things to the professor this family all this they were dismayed man that just stirs me it's like this the Christian, I know the sky's blue. Everyone else in the world keeps telling me it's red. And they come up and they say, the sky is red. I'm like, oh, um, oh, oh, the sky's blue. Uh, 
We're scared, we're dismayed, we're frightened. Did the Israelites not have the hand of God upon them? Family, if you're going through something hard, do you not know that the hand of God is upon you? Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Why are you dismayed? Why are you frightened? Why are you down? Do you what? Do you think he's not going to come through? Do you think the giant is going to backhand you and overtake you? Has God not provided for you all your days? Has he not worked through every single problem in your life? Has he not been faithful to every single one? Has he not met you when you called upon him? Is he a liar? Of course not. He desires to speak to you today. He desires to stir your spirit in such a way that you would rise up and say, I'm ready. And I will fight. And I will trust my God. And I will depend on Him. And He has been faithful to me in the past. So no giant, I don't care how big he is, nine foot nine, that means nothing to me. Numbers, what, the rent's a thousand dollars? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the situation, God will pull through. He doesn't know how to fail. Let's move on. Verse 12, a new picture starts. Now David the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul. That verse 12 is saying that they had a draft. The three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons that went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next son to him was Abinadab, and the third son was Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. So they were getting ready to go to war. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. Interesting. Forty days he presented himself. Forty days! Can you imagine, as I was sitting on that hill there in the Valley of Elah, and 40 days that giant comes out and mocks the people and says, Come on, when are you going to do something? Which one of you are going to step out and bring truth to the table? 40 days. Interesting, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days of fasting, and he was tempted there. The enemy comes to tempt, brings trials, brings heaviness. Sometimes it lasts 40 days, sometimes it lasts longer. But God will pull through as we see right here. Look at this in verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. Now Saul and they, all the men of Israel, we're in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So what happens? Um, Jesse is David's father, and Jesse comes to David and says, Hey, David, take this food to your brothers and see how they are. So David runs off to go meet his brothers there in the Valley of Elah where the war is breaking out. It'd be like us right now if I came to you and said, Hey, go to Iraq and take some food and go and give it to your brothers and see how they're doing. Right there in the middle of battle. Look what happens. Verse 20, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went and Jesse 
had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for battle. So David woke up early in the morning. He left the sheep that he was taking care of. I love that. David the shepherd, man. Really interesting picture we can take there. If you were ever a shepherd in your life, which you will be, those of you who become parents, you will be a shepherd to your children. You were to always leave them with a keeper, someone you trust to take care of the sheep. Be very careful that you would leave them with anyone. And me too, when I go away, I make sure that somebody comes here to the table that I trust that will teach you the Word of God and bring the truth to you. And if you ever have a Bible study and you ever have to leave and somebody else comes to teach, you better make sure that they know the Lord, they teach the truth. You don't want anyone else to be coming up and talking to the sheep that may cause division, mess things up, or would you like a babysitter to take care of your sheep? It isn't going to take care of them? I think not. This is a simple principle to apply. Let's move on. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, an army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. So he goes up to his brothers and salutes them. Not not literally. That, that word salute there is actually uh, it's a phrase that means asked his brethren of their peace or to see how they're doing. He saluted them. But I could just see, I kind of like that picture anyways. It's like the little brother runs up, you know, the big brother's there in the battle, and he walks up and he's like, <laughs> they're just like, oh, great. <laughs> little David, <laughs> why don't you go take care of the sheep, buddy? You know, like, they just, oh, cute David. You know, he's up, he wants to be in the army like us. And anyways, he, he comes up to his brothers and salutes. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, the same words he's been saying. Come on, who's going to battle? Come on, which one of you? And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Again! They saw the man, they saw the nine foot, they saw the 200 pound on his back, they saw the weaver's beam at his hands, 25 pounds on the end, they were scared to death. And they ran Man, that sounds like Christianity. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up? And it shall be that the man who killed him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine, this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Oh, oh, oh. David's just like, dude, what? David, the boy there in the field who trusted in the Lord. Oh, him, the childlike faith. He stands up all tall, saluted, just saluted his brothers and says, huh? Who's the man that defies the God of Israel. Who is the one that rises up against him? What? Let me at him. And they're just like, David, come on, just come on. Calm down, buddy. And the people answered after him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Elab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Elab's anger was kindled against David. His oldest brother started to get mad at him. 
And he said, Why camest thou down hither? Why have you come? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and thy naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David says, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Little David. You know, is, uh, is Isaiah... Robert, would you go get Isaiah for me? Little David coming. I want to play. I want to see the battle. I want to see what's going on. Stands up and Mr. Macho and all coming up. And his brothers just like belittle him. It's like, I remember, I have two younger brothers, Jesse and Jacob. And um, I remember they would want to come play and come hang out and come roll with me. And I'd just be like, dude, no. Come here, bud. And, uh, and, I, and I remember, come here. And, and I remember, you know, like, they kind of want to hang out and do all this stuff. And it's just like, dude, no. Like, you are not coming into battle with us. You're not hanging with the boy. Like, you just totally despise, like, you're younger. That's just what the older brothers do. They just, I don't know, they just do that. Anyways, this is what's happening here with the Philistine. Uh, I'm sorry, with, with David's older brothers. He's kind of, they're kind of just, you know, just shooing him away. And the older brother gets a little angry at him. Like, why'd you come out here? You know, trying to be all tough and big and... It's interesting. Hey, let that be a note real quick. Those of you who are older brothers and sisters, I was talking with Brian about this today. You know, it is so easy for you to be a jerk to your siblings than it is anybody else. Like, you'd never treat anyone else like that. But then, like, when they get on your nerves, you're just like, shut up. Stop. Just go. You know, you just you just wanted to strangle them. You know, like, I just, even when I get over my brothers to this day, if I'm around them for, like, a week straight, like, my youngest brother, Jesse, he'll just get on my nerves and be like, and he's he's 21, you know, he's 22. But I'll, real quick, we were in a hotel. I challenged them both to a fight. Took them both down at the same time. Yes! Still got it. Anyways, but I, I'll challenge him anytime, you know. And, and Jesse, the youngest, I'll just be like, dude, stop. You know, like, you just get... And I treat no one else on the face of the earth like that, not even the non-believer. You know, my brother, oh, I'll backhand him in a second. You know, like, I just, it's amazing. It's not a good thing. But let it be a lesson, you know. Hey, love your family. You know, my my younger brothers, when I love them, and when I love on them, when I give them a hug, when I tell them I love them, I used to never say this, but now I do. And when I get an opportunity to really sit down and talk with them, they adore, they really love it. I mean, they are just like, they can't believe, like, wow, you know, like Josh is talking with us. I never knew how much my brother respected me, especially Jacob, just till... It's probably about a month ago when um, his girlfriend was talking to me on the phone. She's just like, sorry, Isaiah. He just, But um, she was talking to me and she's like, you know what? Jake used to always be so scared to open up to you because, and, and I would tell him to call you, but he would say, no, I can't talk to Josh. Like, I don't want to let him down. You know, he's like, you know, he's, you don't understand. My brother's like quarterback, you know, and president of the school and Mr. You know, cool guy there. It's like, I can't. I don't want to let him down. I don't want him to see. He's the big brother, you know. Like he, he's always been there, and he always just saying these things about. I never knew this, and now I understand. And what a sweet blessing it is when I pour into my brothers and I speak to them and love on them. They are so blessed, and I, I never knew it. I never knew it. May we do the same, Amen. May we show that to our family members. Let's get back to the story. All right, bud. You ready?
And he turned from him and toward another and spake after the same manner, verse 30. And the people answered him again after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, rehearse them before Saul and be sent for him. So they're just like, this man David, you know, he's saying that he wants to go out, he wants to do something. And so they're like, go and tell Saul. And David said to Saul, David, you're going to be David for a sec, all right? Because I want the people to get the picture, Isaiah, of what a young guy, a shepherd boy that David was, and maybe like I'm Eliab, the big brother, just like, like I'm in war, I've just gone to war and all this stuff, and you've come out to say, Josh, I want to fight too, and I'm just like, Isaiah, you can't fight, you're too young, buddy, you got to wait. But you are the one to stand up and make the difference. You are the one who will be the champion in the end. The big brother will look down and despise, but you are the one who is going to rise up. So I want you to read this, all right, buddy? I want you to read verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go out and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So, so Saul says, buddy, but hey, 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 you're young. You can't go out and fight, man. And what do you say? And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a, a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered him it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. So he said, listen up, man. Saul, I may be a boy, but man, when lions and bears came, I grabbed him by the beard and killed him. And I'll do the same thing that uncircumcised Philistine straight up told him. Look what goes on. And David said, moreover, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord will be with thee. All right, so uh, Saul says, All right, man, you think you got it? Then the Lord be with you. Go after it. Now, see, what if I was to tell you that I was going to send Isaiah into Iraq and that he was going to fight against the Philistine? You'd say, No, you are not doing that. And every single one of us, and even if he came to us and said, Let me go. Let me do this. I, I will deliver him into the hand of the Lord. And you're just like, Oh, no. But Saul eventually says, fine, go, man. You know, like, you want to do this? Okay. When he has seen the hand of the Lord upon David in the past. But look what happens. Look what happens here in verse 30. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. And he also armed him with a coat of mail. So he gave him all the things that Goliath had, all this armor. And David girded his sword upon his armor. And he, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul... I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. So David's like, man, I can't wear this stuff. In verse 40, And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a crypt. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. And the Philistines came and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. So stop here. So David's just like, dude, I can't take all this armor. I'm not going to have this. And he goes and he grabs five smooth stones out of the brook. I have five smooth stones from that same brook. Now, why did he choose five? Interesting. 
It only took one to kill the man, right? I think because Goliath had four brothers. And David was going to kill them all. He was going to take them all out. Look at the, the faith of this kid. He went and he stepped out and he was ready for battle. He trusted in the Lord. Let's see what happens next. And when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. Just like right now. If I was just like, uh, maybe we get Jeremy up here or something like that to come and battle with Isaiah. It's just like, dude, that's not a that's not a fight. That's not right. You know, you can't do that. And the Philistine look at him and just like, dude, what have you done? You send the youth out to me? In verse 43, And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you comest at me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Oh, oh, that's it. The Philistine says, Am I a dog? What are you doing sending this little boy out to me? Haven't you seen me? I killed so many people. You're going to send this little boy out to me? Watch what's about to happen. Watch this. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air, and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistines, Thou comest to me with the sword, and with the spear, and with the shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thee, thine head from thee. And I will give the carcass, I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the, the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assemblies shall know that the Lord saveth not the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose. Stop there. So David walks out in the field. Can you imagine this? The armies of Israel. Bam! The Philistines on the other side. And there's David and Mr. Nine Foot Nine standing out there in the field. And the Philistines just like, dude... I'm going to take your skin and I'm going to throw it to the fowls of the air. I'm going to throw it to the birds. This is ridiculous. And David stands up and is just like, "Uh uh-uh. This day you will know that there is a God in Israel. And I'm going to cut your head off. I'm going to kill you. And you will die right here before of all of Israel. And you will see that there is a God in Israel. And look what happens. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth. I'm sorry. Move down. Verse 48, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Did you see that? He ran. He sprinted. It wasn't like this. All of a sudden he sees Mr. Nine Foot Nine like, oh, oh, oh. No, it's just like, oh, that's it. That's it. You know, just bam, just started running towards him. Can you imagine the giant just standing there? Just like with his spear like before. And everybody's just like, oh, snap, what's about to happen? I mean, you probably could have cut the tension there's like a string. I mean, just crazy amounts of tension. Everybody's just like, what's going on here? And this boy starts to run at the giant. And the giant's just like, oh, I'm excited. And I wonder if everybody up there in the crowd is just like, oh, man, I don't want David to die. The little boy, why is this happening? But look what happened. And David put his hand in the bag and took thence a stone and sling it and smote the Philistine in the forehead that the stone sunk into the forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David.
David pulled out that one stone. He dropped his giant. It sunk right into his forehead right here. And the Philistine fell on his face. I can't imagine what must have happened, what, what it must have felt like. After that giant fell, David just completely blown away. Let me finish up the chapter here and I'm going to give a quick explanation. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took out his sword. He took the Philistine's sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. That's right. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And they wounded the Philistines. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Sherayim, even unto Gath and even unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistines, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is that youth? Whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, and inquired, Thou whose son this stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with his head and the Philistines in his hand. And Saul said unto him, Whose son art thou, the young, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Sorry, buddy, you got to stand up here. But listen. You know who you are? You are Isaiah. In this battle, that's right before us. Yeah, it's looks like nine foot nine, doesn't it? Look at this giant in front of you in your life right now. Who is it? What is it? Nine foot nine, it's tall and it's big. But listen, maybe you think the child could never take down the giant, but God will prevail. He never loses. He doesn't know how. And I speak to you tonight, and I even speak to Isaiah. Listen, buddy. We as a family, these people here, and you yourself, man, as we rise up in this generation, we have got to be different. There are many people who try to wipe God off the face of the earth. And I want you to even start now. And just as you even stand here and you look at this crowd, even these, and me too, man, there are people in the universities and college and all this stuff, and they just they challenge God and they challenge all these things biblically. I know you go to Christian school, but it's like there are a lot of people rising up against God, just like Goliath did here in this day. And I want you, buddy, to make your stand in your school and even all the days of your life, man, you know, as, you, as you seek the face of God, to make a stand wherever you go. You've got a brilliant mind, you know that. But to use your mind to battle against the Goliaths in this world, man, who try to kick God in the face, try to laugh at Him and say He's not there, and people who don't want to seek righteousness and don't want to seek truth. All right? And um, I'm going to exhort the people now. You can listen if you want. You can take a seat or whatever you want to do. But thank you. Thanks for reading for me. Let's give me a hand, huh? Now listen. Yeah, it's it's the child story that we it's the childhood story. It's the Sunday school story, is it not? The one that we all know, the one that we've heard a million times, that we know the application and we see it, but how does it apply to you right now? What is the giant in your life? Just tell yourself, okay, I 
Do you know what it is? And now let me ask you the faith. Do you have the faith to believe that God is going to pull you through it? You say, yeah, Josh, I do. do you, okay, you have the faith now. Do you have the faith tomorrow? What happens when reality hits? The giant is big. I want you, family, to run with me towards the giant, to run, to chase down, to laugh at and mock. I love that. David's just like, you are going to rise against the great God. Do you know him? And we should have the same spirit within our own lives. Like right now in my life, like whatever is happening, let's say uh, a big trial or problem, like with my brother, this is a huge challenge. Jesse, man, I long for the day when he seeks Jesus with all his heart with when he once did. It does, it seems like an impossible task. Like, how do I pull it off, King? Like, what, what words do I say? How do I make it happen? And sure, I can say to you and, and even front to you guys, see, I have faith that he's going to come back to Jesus one day. I know that. But you know what? When I have a conversation with him, when I talk with him afterwards, you know how down I am? And I can just see, like, the enemy is just ripping him. It breaks my heart. I want him to be free. And it's hard for me to run at the enemy with that. It's hard for me to chase him down and to swing that sling in the air and drop him and say say to the enemy, as my brother, as I look at my brother and say, do you know who the living God is? You think that because my brother is not serving God now that this is going to stop me? Are you crazy? This means nothing to me. This is small. This is minute. And I want you guys to apply it. Jeez, I just... I know you know the application. I know you know the story. But I want you to apply it to your life. Please. You know what I'm talking about? When the rent's due, you don't look at that and say, Oh, no. Um, oh, please, please, God, please deliver me. But you say this, Father, I, you've always delivered, and I trust you, and I believe in you, and I will run at that rent with all my might. I don't care how tall it is, how big it is. Lord, I look at the problem and the situation that I'm in right now, but that's no big deal to me. Un, uncircumcised Philistine, you come at the living God problem? You come at the living God and think that He's not going to deliver me? Uh, ridiculous. This doesn't make sense to my mind. Because my mind is so focused on the King in such a way where I believe and know that He will pull through for my life and the situation that I'm in. Wherever I'm at, you understand. It's the place of application. It's the biggest place where Christians do not stand forth. I hear the majority of Christianity. And us, we complain. We're like the Israelites. Something goes wrong and we question God. Something goes wrong and we come and complain to one another. I don't know why this is happening. How does this work? And that's okay, yes. But I long for the day when we are one that is tied together. When we, when a problem comes, we attack. We move forward in our walks with God. We grow in our trial and tribulation. You know what I'm talking about? Instead of moving backwards, we move forwards. If someone attacks you in your walk your professor, then you go and study and you talk to the Lord about it and you move forward. If the rents do, you pray and get on your face and seek God and say, and go to your brothers, let's pray. Let's seek God. Let's watch Him pull through. You know something crazy happened this last week. Remember, Jay? We're sitting there and one of the big dogs that we're trying to interview is not calling back. 
and we're trying to figure out like, oh man, we got to get this guy an interview. We we flew all the way out here to North Carolina to get this guy on video, and he's not calling Jay back. His phone's off. It's lunchtime. Lunchtime's almost over, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what we're gonna do. We're just like, oh, maybe we're just not gonna get him. Oh well. And then I was just like, Jay, we just need to pray, man. Let's pray specifically. Let's ask God that Gary Habermas would call you. Let's ask. And we pray and we ask. Was it about two minutes, Jay? Probably about two minutes. And I'm telling you, we're just like sitting there in the couches just like, dude, why is this happening, man? Please. And we pray and all of a sudden Jay's phone goes off and we look and we're just like, is it Gary? He's like, yeah. And he opens it up and he just starts talking to him. And then he comes up. We do the full interview and everything. We're just like, oh, you are real. You do answer. You either have the opportunity right now with the giant in front of you to to run at him and watch God save you. Or you can run from him and watch God raise somebody else and save you. You can retreat and get laughed at. And fall down, and yeah, God's still going to pull through. You know what I'm talking about? What if we would have not have prayed? And then maybe, yeah, Gary ends up calling anyways or whatever. You know what prayer is? Prayer is not changing God's mind. It is helping us to see what God is about to do. It's lining us up with His will and what He wants to do. Say, we prayed, and we got to see the blessing. If we wouldn't have prayed, the blessing would have came, and we would have said what? Of course God pulls through. Man, of course, man, of course, geez, of course. Why didn't we think of that? Any- Why didn't we pray? Why didn't we ask God? So now you have an opportunity to do what? To, to, to run at the, to run at Goliath, to run at the giant, or to retreat and say, mm, well, let's just see what God does. And of course, He pulls through, as He always does, right? I mean, you're here today. You either get to have one blessing, God pulls through like He always does, or you get to have two. You prayed, you sought the face of God, you chased after this thing, and you watched God deliver you, and then you get double blessing. Because you praised Him before, and you praised Him after. Understand? Alright. I've babbled enough. And now, we are going to pray and ask God right now. Each one of you. We've talked about it enough, and now, can we? Why don't we end the night with that, huh? Why don't we have one another, the person next to you, and if you're like, I don't really know the person next to me, I'm kind of uncomfortable, we'll find somebody you know real quick, or, or if you just want to sit person next, uh, pray with the person next to you, then praise God, then pray with them. But I want you to just share with them, and you don't have to be specific if you don't want to, but just say, can you pray for this? And just let them pray for you. And would you guys run at the giant together? Would you attack Would you make the stand and say, my God's big and he always pulls through? Can we do that? And pray for one another. And we'll end it just like that, all right? Jay, you want to come pray with me? Let's do that together. Amen, family? Let me close the night in prayer and then you guys go into this. Father, bless these. Let this time of prayer be sweet to your ears. Let us attack the giant in the ways of you. We believe in you. We know you can take down Goliath every single day. It doesn't matter how tall. 17 feet. It doesn't matter. We trust you. And we will be ones to rise up and believe in your name in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's pray.